Hi, and welcome back to Strange Proposition. I'm John. Uh, This episode, we're going to be reading Chapter 7 and working with others. So I'll jump into it. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. Life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends, this is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. Perhaps you are not acquainted with any drinkers who want to recover. You can easily find some by asking a few doctors, ministers, priests, or hospitals. They will be only too glad to assist you. Don't start out as an evangelist or reformer. Unfortunately, a lot of prejudice exists. You will be handicapped if you arouse it. Ministers and doctors are competent, and you can learn much from them if you wish, but it happens that because of your own drinking experience, you can be uniquely useful to other alcoholics. So cooperate, never criticize. To be helpful is our only aim. When you discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, find out all you can about him. If he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. You may spoil a later opportunity. This advice is given for his family also. They should be patient, realizing they are dealing with a sick person. If there is any indication that he wants to stop, have a good talk with the person most interested in him, usually his wife. Get an idea of his behavior, his problems, his background, the seriousness of his condition, and his religious leanings. You need this information to put yourself in his place, to see how you would like to him how you would like him to approach you if the tables were turned. Sometimes it is wise to go till he goes to wait till he goes on a binge. The family may object to this, but unless he is in a dangerous physical condition, it is better to risk it. Don't deal with him when he is very drunk, unless he is ugly and the family needs your help. Wait for the end of the spree, or at least for a lucid interval. Then let his family or a friend ask him if he wants to quit for good, and if he would go to any extreme to do so. If he says yes, then his attention should be drawn to you as a person who has recovered. You should be described to him as one of a fellowship who, as a part of their own recovery, try to help others and who will be glad to talk to him if he cares to see you. If he does not want to see you, never force yourself upon him. Neither should the family hysterically plead with him to do anything, nor should they tell him much about you. They should wait for the end of his next drinking bout. You might place this book where he can see it in the interval. Here no specific rule can be given. The family must decide these things, but urge them not to be overanxious, for that might spoil matters. Usually the family should not try to tell your story. When possible, avoid meeting a man through his family. Approach through a doctor or an institution is a better bet. If your man needs hospitalization, he should have it, but not forcibly unless he is violent. Let the doctor, if he will, tell him he has something in the way of a solution. When your man is better, the doctor might suggest a visit from you. Though you have talked with the family, leave them out of the first discussion. Under these conditions, your prospect will see he is under no pressure. He will feel he can deal with you without being nagged by his family. Call on him while he is still jittery. He may be more receptive when depressed. See your man alone if possible. At first, engage in general conversation. After a while, turn the talk to some phase of drinking. Tell him enough about your drinking habits, symptoms, and experiences to encourage him to speak of himself. If he wishes to talk, let him do so. You will thus get a better idea of how you ought to proceed. If he is not communicative, give him a sketch of your drinking career up to the time you quit. But say nothing for the moment of how that was accomplished. If he is in a serious mood, dwell on the troubles liquors has caused you, being careful not to moralize or lecture. 
If his mood is light, tell him humorous stories of your escapades. Get him to tell some of his. When he sees you know all about the drinking game, commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. Tell him how baffled you were, how you finally learned that you were sick. Give him an account of the struggles you made to stop. Show him the mental twist which leads to the first drink of a spree. We suggest you do this as we have done it in the chapter on alcoholism. If he is alcoholic, he will understand you at once. He will match your mental inconsistencies with some of his own. If you are satisfied that he is a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. Show him from your own experience how the queer mental condition surrounding that first drink prevents normal functioning of the willpower. Don't at this stage refer to this book unless he has seen it and wishes to discuss it. And be careful not to brand him as an alcoholic. Let him draw his own conclusion. If he sticks to the idea that he can still control his drinking, tell him that possibly he can, if he is not too alcoholic. But insist that if he is severely afflicted, there may be little chance he can recover by himself. Continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of body and mind which accompany it. Keep his attention focused mainly on your personal experience. Explain that many are doomed who never realize their predicament. Doctors are rightly loath to tell alcoholic patients the whole story unless it will serve some good purpose. But you may talk to him about the hopelessness of alcoholism because you offer a solution. You will soon have your friend admitting he has many, if not all, of the traits of the alcoholic. If his own doctor is willing to tell him that he is alcoholic, so much the better. Even though your protege may not have entirely admitted his condition, he has become very curious to know how you got well. Let him ask you that question if you will. Tell me exactly what happened to you. Stress the spiritual feature freely. If the man be agnostic or atheist, make it emphatic that he does not have to agree with your conception of God. He can choose any conception he likes, provided it makes sense to him. The main thing is that he be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he live by spiritual principles. So I'm going to stop here at the top of 93, the end of that paragraph. So, you know, of course, as we've seen before, the, there's no support for the idea that the principles of recovery are spiritual. So this idea of belief in a power greater than himself and living by spiritual principles, you know, the secular program of action that we've been emphasizing, the wheat that we've been separating from the chaff of the religious idea of AA, um, you know, that is obviously important. And I think that it's, you, you know, there's a lot of good stuff, especially in the last few paragraphs I read, you know, the stuff about how to approach someone in a hospital and how to hide your identity and, and when to reveal certain things about yourself, you know, that, that all more, more and more, we tend to meet newcomers to AA in AA meetings. So there's less of that, um, cloak and dagger stuff that, 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 that perhaps was, was really hard won wisdom uh, in the early days of AA, but it's probably less important to pay attention to today, but how to impress upon a new alcoholic step one is still something that, you know, we all need to have a good handle on when we're dealing with alcoholics because just because someone is at a meeting does not mean they have worked step one or they understand it yet. Uh, so I'll continue with the reading. When dealing with such a person, you would better use everyday language to describe spiritual principles. There's no use arousing any prejudice he may have against certain theological terms and conceptions about which he may already be confused. Don't raise such issues, no matter what your convictions are. Your prospect may belong to a religious denomination. His religious education and training may be far superior to yours. In that case, he is going to wonder how you can add anything to what he already knows. 
but he will be curious to learn why his own convictions have not worked and why yours seem to work so well. He may be an example of the truth that faith alone is insufficient. To be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish constructive action. Let him see that you are not there to instruct him in religion. Admit that he probably knows more about it than you do, but call to his attention the fact that however deep his faith and knowledge, he could not have applied it or he would not drink. Perhaps your story will help him see where he has failed to practice the very precepts he knows so well. We represent no particular faith or denomination. We are dealing only with general principles common to most denominations. And this, I want to stop here too because one thing I want to point out is, you know, as atheists going to meetings, we may meet plenty of newcomers who are not atheists. And we may meet the newcomer, like the one described at the bottom of 93, who is quite religious. And, you know, we don't, you know, we. Just just as we would hope that people we meet in recovery don't turn away from us when they find out that we're an atheist, you know, we try to be tolerant of and and encouraging uh, towards anybody who wants to recover, whether or not they're an atheist. And if they're a deeply religious person, you know, we can help them because we know the practical program of action. And if this person chooses to supplement that, with the spiritual, you know, with a simple religious idea and, and you know, do steps two and three and do step 11 and do six and seven in the way that the big book puts them forward as, as a sort of like a, a, a request to God as opposed to an opportunity just to contemplate on our spirit, on our, excuse me, on our character defects and, uh, and, and mine ourselves for the willingness to be relieved of them. You know, we can be helpful to those people because we know we have the missing piece. You know, they, they have the faith, but they don't know what work they have to do. Uh, and we can supply that. And if they want to go off and pray on their own, you know, we shouldn't be discouraging of that. You know, as long as they're not harming anybody, um, if it works to their benefit, then, um, you know, we should encourage them to do that. That's a great tool to have in your tool belt, uh, you know, faith in the higher power. It, I, I don't think it really hurts alcoholics. It's just for those who don't believe in it, it can be confusing and ultimately counterproductive. You know, if you believe this is delusional, then it's not going to help your recovery much to engage, to be told repeatedly to engage in delusion. So I'll pick up the reading on 94. Outline the program of action, explaining how you made a self-appraisal, how you straightened out your past, and why you are now endeavoring to be helpful to him. It is important for him to realize that your attempt to pass this on to him plays a vital part in your own recovery. Actually, he may be helping you more than you are helping him. Make it plain he is under no obligation to you, that you hope only that he will try to help other alcoholics when he escapes his own difficulties. Suggest how important it is that he places that he place the welfare of other people ahead of his own. Make it clear that he is not under pressure, that he needn't see you again if he doesn't want to. You should not be offended if he wants to call it off, for he has helped you more than you have helped him. If your talk has been sane, quiet, and full of human understanding, you have perhaps made a friend. Maybe you have disturbed him about the question of alcoholism. This is all to the good. The more hopeless he feels, the better. He will be more likely to follow your suggestions. Your candidate may give reasons why he need not follow all of the program. He may rebel at the thought of a drastic house cleaning which requires discussion with other people. Do not contradict such views. Tell him you once felt as he does, but you doubt whether he would have made you would have made much progress had you not taken action. On your first visit, tell him about the fellowships of Alcoholics Anonymous. If he shows interest, lend him your copy of this book. 
Unless your friend wants to talk further about himself, do not wear out your welcome. Give him a chance to think it over. If you do stay, let him steer the conversation in any direction he likes. Sometimes a new man is anxious to proceed at once, and you may be tempted to let him do so. This is sometimes a mistake. If he has trouble later, he is likely to say you rushed him. You will be most successful with alcoholics if you do not exhibit any passion for a crusade or reform. Never talk down to an alcoholic from any moral or spiritual hilltop. Simply lay out the kit of spiritual tools for his inspection. Show him how they worked with you. Offer him friendship and fellowship. Tell him if he wants to get well, you will do anything to help. And this goes way back, right? Like we remember this from very early chapters, uh, this idea of the of kit of spiritual tools, right? There's no support for the spirituality of any of the tools in the program of action. You know, honesty, um, inventory, you know, revealing that to somebody, restitution, making, you know, amends to people who've been harmed, helpfulness to others, you know, things like humility, selflessness, altruism. There's nothing spiritual about any of that. So we're really just talking about a kit of tools, laying that out uh, for the newcomer's inspection. So I just want to make that important edit that we've made before, but it's important to stay on top of it as we're going through this uh, chapter on step 12, which really is about working on the altruistic plane, not on the spiritual plane. I'll continue with the reading on 95. If he is not interested in your solution, if he expects you to act only as a banker for his financial difficulties or a nurse for his sprees, you may have to drop him until he changes his mind, as he may do after he gets hurt some more. If he is sincerely interested and wants to see you again, ask him to read this book in the interval. After doing that, he must decide for himself whether he wants to go on. He should not be pushed or prodded by you, his wife, or his friends. If he is to find God, the desire must come from within. If he thinks he can do the job in some other way or prefers some other spiritual approach, encourage him to follow his own conscience. We have no monopoly on God. We merely have an approach that worked with us. But point out that we alcoholics have much in common and that you would like in any case to be friendly. Let it go at that. Do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. One of our fellowships failed entirely with his first half-dozen prospects. He often says that if he had continued to work on them, he might have deprived many others who have since recovered of their chance. Suppose now you are making your second visit to a man. He has read this volume and says he is prepared to go through with the 12 steps of the program of recovery. Having had the experience yourself, you can give him much practical advice. Let him know you are available if he wishes to make a decision and tell his story. But do not insist upon it if he prefers to consult someone else. He may be broken homeless. If he is, you might try to help him about getting a job or give him a little financial assistance. But you should not deprive your family or creditors of money they should have. Perhaps you will want to take the man into your home for a few days, but be sure you use discretion. Be certain he will be welcomed by your family and that he is not trying to impose upon you for money, connections, or shelter. Permit that, and you only harm him. You will be making it possible for him to be insincere. You may be aiding in his destruction rather than his recovery. Never avoid these responsibilities, but be sure you are doing the right thing if you assume them. Helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. 
A kindly act once in a while isn't enough. You have to act the Good Samaritan every day if need be. It may mean the loss of many nights' sleep, great interference with your pleasures, interruptions to your business. It may mean sharing your money in your home, counseling frantic wives and relatives, innumerable trips to police courts, sanitariums, hospitals, jails, and asylums. Your telephone may jangle at any time of the day or night. Your wife may sometimes say she's neglected. A drunk may smash the furniture in your home or burn a mattress. You may have to fight with him if he is violent. Sometimes you will have to call a doctor or administer sedatives under his direction. Another time you may have to send for the police or an ambulance. Occasionally you will have to meet such conditions. We seldom allow an alcoholic to live in our homes for, any, for long at a time. It is not good for him and it sometimes creates serious complications in a family. Though an alcoholic does not respond, there is no reason why you should neglect his family. You should continue to be friendly to them. The family should be offered your way of life. They should accept and practice spiritual principles. Should they accept and practice spiritual principles, there is a much better chance that the head of the family will recover. And even though he continues to drink, the family will find life more bearable. And again, by spiritual principles here, we're talking about, um, you know, honesty, humility, restitution, selflessness, altruism. You know, the, the new conceptions and motives that Jung talked about uh, coming to dominate somebody after uh, the vital spiritual experience, but which was actually a secular phenomenon as Jung was describing it. And of course, you know, it's, I, I, it's really heartening, to be honest here, this sentence at the top of 97, helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. I mean, Bill is now kind of toggling between God is everything and working with others is the cornerstone of your recovery. Right, Like in Bill's story, he said, yes, I prayed and I meditated, but when it came down to it and I was at my most tenuous in my sobriety, helping another alcoholic was the only thing that saved me. So the work on the spiritual plane and the work on the altruistic plane, for a while, in sort of the theoretical work that was being done in these pages by Bill, everything was subordinated to... God and to the spiritual and to, and to a higher power, God as, as Bill understood him. But now when we're looking at the practical evidence, we're seeing more parity between the simple religious idea and the practical program of action in sort of the way that the Oxford groups seem to be presenting it. But what we're going to find uh, as we go through this is that these terms like God and higher power and spirituality start to just completely melt away. And, and they have no content whatsoever, and we can easily pierce through them and see what really is important in being talked about. But I just want to read one more paragraph and then go back to a lot of what we've been reading about with 12-step work in this last page of 97. So um, at the bottom of 97, I'll pick up again. For the type of alcoholic who's able and willing to get well, little charity in the ordinary sense of the word is needed or wanted. The men who cry for money and shelter before conquering alcohol are on the wrong track. Yet we do go to great extremes to provide each other with these very things when such action is warranted. This may seem inconsistent, but we think it is not. So yeah, I mean, this talk about, like, be sure to use discretion. Be certain he will be welcomed by your family. And then, you know, your wife may sometimes be, say she's being neglected. Furniture smashed, mattresses are burned, violent fights break out within the home with the person that you are trying to 12-step by giving shelter. So that, that's extraordinarily inconsistent, right? So this, this last sentence here uh, at the top of 98, this may seem inconsistent, but we think it is not. 
there's no real argument for the for any consistency in in this approach being detailed of not of you of having to act the good Samaritan every day if need be to quote page ninety seven you know a kindly act once in a while isn't enough it says like you basically you you have to well it's clear I mean what what's what's being recommended and and what's being told to us we must do once we've gotten sober and once we're at step twelve and they're saying it may seem inconsistent but uh, you know we think it is consistent. But this is, again, I mean, think about the level of clarity in Bill's thought. I mean, this guy with these delusions of God and a higher power and so on and so forth. And the inconsistency even in his theoretical approach to sobriety. Remember, he's saying, yes, faith without works is dead and the practical program must be worked. But he gives the example in an earlier chapter of, a, of someone who gets, who gets all the promises, fifth Ninth and ten step promises regains his sanity when it comes to alcohol, having taken no moral inventory, making no amends, and helping no one else simply by praying correctly. If we go way back a few episodes ago and way back in the basic text that we've read, so yeah, this is inconsistent, and and Bill's just saying this may seem inconsistent, but we think it is not. That doesn't really cut it. So you know, feel free to keep that in mind as you're reading these commands of how of the type of altruism that must be practiced and, and how, how much we should be willing to, to put up with and what we should be willing to expose our, ourselves and our families and our homes to. Keep that in mind, that, that this is a real swing and a miss for uh, the big book here. But I'll pick up with the reading on 98. It is not the matter of giving that is in question, but when and how to give. That often makes the difference between failure and success. The minute we put our work on a service plane, the alcoholic commences to rely upon our insistence rather than upon God. He clamors for this or that, claiming he cannot master alcohol until his material needs are cared for. Nonsense. Some of us have taken very hard knocks to learn this truth. Job or no job, wife or no wife, we simply do not stop drinking so long as we place dependence upon other people ahead of dependence upon God. Burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trust in God and clean house. So I want to stop here. This is sort of Bill equivocating about um, people and dependence upon people. I mean, like I've, like I've, I've cited in, in this episode so far, even Bill said that, yes, prayer and meditation were important, but when it came down to it, the only thing that kept him sober in those early days was helping other alcoholics. And it says here, even on 97, helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. So people helping each other, people depending not just on others to help them, like newcomers, but people like sober alcoholics depending upon their being newcomers to try to reach as a means of maintaining their own sobriety, that's real. And that is superior to anything you can get by via dependence on God. So the, but but here they're saying well you know whether you have a job or whether you whether you have a spouse that isn't that isn't as important as whether you have a relationship with God. So they're equivocating between what dependence on people means. I mean dependence on people outside of the altruistic plane of recovery, outside of alcoholics trying to carry the message to each other, the message of the secular program of recovery, the practical program of action. 
that kind of dependence on people isn't going to keep you sober. And if that's the case, then I, if anyone's to stay sober, it would have to be upon not a human facility, but a superhuman power, right? God. So just like, just to watch out for that. And they're doing it here. All right. Picking up the reading on 98. Now the domestic problem. There may be divorce, separation, or just strained relations. When your prospect has made such reparation as he can to his family and has thoroughly explained to them the new principles by which he is living, he should proceed to put those principles into action at home. That is, if he is lucky enough to have a home. Though his family be at fault in many respects, he should not be concerned about that. He should concentrate on his own spiritual demonstration. Argument and fault-finding are to be avoided like the plague. In many homes, this is a difficult thing to do, but it must be done if any results are to be expected. If persisted in for a few months, the effect on a man's family is sure to be great. The most compatible people discover they have a basis upon which they can meet. The most incompatible people discover they have a basis upon which they can meet. Excuse me. Little by little, the family may see their own defects and admit them. These can be then be discussed in an atmosphere of helpfulness and friendliness. So here, you know, he should concentrate on his own spiritual demonstration. So what does that mean? I mean, literally, a spiritual demonstration would mean ha- having to expose one's eternal soul or having to provide evidence of one's relationship with God. And Bill would say, well, evidence of my relationship with God is that I'm honest and humble and I help people and I'm, I'm not afraid anymore and fear of financial and economic insecurity has left me. But these are all material principles, right? Like it says right before that idea of concentrating on his own spiritual demonstration, proceed to put these principles into action at home. Um, he should not be concerned about other people's faults. So spiritual demonstration simply means showing that you have cleaned house, that you have made amends, and that you are upon a footing of helping others. And that you are, the ideas, emotions, and theories which used to dominate you have now given way to new convictions and motives. You know, to, to, to put it in Jungian terms, as Jung is, is quoted in, in the big book, briefly on, on page 27. So... That's that's all that means. But again, it's this unsupported um, appellation of spiritual to the demonstration of, of our principles, right? There's nothing spiritual about any of those principles. And a spiritual demonstration literally construed would mean something, mad, some, something miraculous on the level of like a, a miracle that one could be canonized for, right? Like actually showing like a physical miracle, something that that has no material or physical explanation. Let's keep that in mind. If Bill says something is spiritual, we have to imagine that that means that it it can have no material or physical explanation. And yet everything in the secular program of action that we've been seeing, all these principles are completely explicable in the material and physical realms. So I'll continue reading on 99. After they have seen tangible results, the family will perhaps want to go along. These things will come to pass naturally and in good time, provided, however, the alcoholic continues to demonstrate that he can be sober, considerate, and helpful, regardless of what anyone says or does. Of course, we all fall much below the standard many times, but we must try to repair the damage immediately, lest we pay the penalty by a spree. If there be divorce or separation, there should be no undue haste for the couple to get together. The man should be sure of his recovery. The woman should, be, should fully understand his new way of life. Or the wife should fully understand his new way of life. 
If their old relationship is to be resumed, it must be on a better basis, since the former did not work. This means a new attitude and spirit all around. Sometimes it is to the best interests of all concerned that a couple remain apart. Obviously, no rule can be laid down. Let the alcoholic continue his program day by day. When the time for living together is come, it will be apparent to both parties. But no alcoholic say he cannot recover unless he has his family back. This just isn't so. In some cases, the wife will never come back for one reason or another. Remind the prospect that his recovery is not dependent upon people. It is dependent upon his relationship with God. We have seen men get well whose families have not returned at all. We have seen others slip when the family came back too soon. Both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. So this is fascinating. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. So these dictates are the principles of the practical program of action. So now, while the theory laid out in the big book was that God is everything, God shines sunlight of the Spirit down upon us, God does this, God does that, you don't even need to take inventory, clean house, make amends, or help others. If you pray correctly, even if it's in an alcoholic asylum, God will restore you to sanity when it comes to drinking and your alcohol problem will be solved entirely as as one of the stories that bill could not could not help himself but to excerpt before you got to the whole to the full story in the story section of the book right but here we're not saying you know follow your higher power but follow the dictates of a higher power which we know are just you know they say like Instead of saying progress and principles, they say spiritual progress and spiritual principles. So at this point, the practical evidence is catching up. And Bill is now trying to merge the, the divine with the material, right? Like, right? With the secular program of action. So I'll pick up on 100, page 100. When working with a man and his family, you should take care not to participate in their quarrels. You may spoil your chance of being helpful if you do. But urge upon a man's family that he has been a very sick person and should be treated accordingly. You should warn against arousing resentment or jealousy. You should point out that his defects of character are not going to disappear overnight. Show them that he has entered upon a period of growth. Ask them to remember, when they are impatient, the blessed fact of his sobriety. If you have been successful in solving your own domestic problems, tell the newcomer's family how that was accomplished. In this way, you can set them on the right track without becoming critical of them. The story of how you and your wife settled upon settled your own difficulties is worth any amount of criticism. Assuming we are spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things alcoholics are not supposed to do. People have said we must not go where liquor is served. We must not have it in our homes. We must shun friends who drink. We must avoid moving pictures which show drinking scenes. We must not go into bars. Our friends must hide their bottles if we go to their houses. We mustn't think or be reminded about alcohol at all. Our experience shows that this is not necessarily so. We meet these conditions every day. An alcoholic who cannot meet them still has an alcoholic mind. There is something the matter with his spiritual status. His only chance for sobriety would be someplace like the Greenland ice cap, and even there an Eskimo might turn up with a bottle of scotch and ruin everything. 
Ask any woman who has sent her husband to distant places on the theory that he would escape the alcohol problem. In our belief, any scheme of combating alcoholism which proposes to shield the sick man from temptation is doomed to failure. If the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a time, but he usually winds up with a bigger explosion than ever. We have tried these methods. These attempts to do the impossible have always failed. So our rule is not to avoid a place where there is drinking if we have a legitimate reason for being there. That includes bars, nightclubs, dances, receptions, weddings, even plain ordinary whoopee parties. To a person who has had experience with an alcoholic, this may seem like tempting providence, but it isn't. You will note that we made an important qualification. Therefore, ask yourself on each equation, have I any good social, business, or personal reason for going to this place? Or am I expecting to steal a little vicarious pleasure from the atmosphere of such places? If you answer these questions satisfactorily, you need have no apprehension. Go or stay away, whichever seems best. But be sure you are on solid spiritual ground before you start and that your motive is not in going is thoroughly good. Do not think of what you will get out of the occasion. Think of what you can bring to it. But if you are shaky, you would better work with another alcoholic instead. Okay. So, you know, we in the in the past few paragraphs I read you know, assuming we are spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things we're not supposed to do. Um, an alcoholic who cannot meet them, these conditions that where alcohol is present, still has an alcoholic mind. There's something the matter with his spiritual status. And then it finally comes down to it. Be sure you are on spiritual, solid spiritual ground before you start. But if you are shaky, you had better work with another alcoholic instead. So all this talk about spiritual fitness and spiritual status and spiritual ground comes down to working with another alcoholic, right? It says, are you, on, are you on solid spiritual ground? No. If you are shaky, you had better work with another alcoholic instead. So all the spiritual talk is just, it, it's meaningless at this point, right? Like it's completely something that's being discussed on the altruistic plane, not on the spiritual plane anymore. There's no more appeal to a higher power there's no more um, need for the supernatural or the superhuman. It's simply using spiritual as a catch-all adjective just to mean like g- kind of like wholesome goodness. And what effectively it means for atheists and for people who work the secular program of recovery, the practical program of action, it means are you being, are you, like have you worked steps four through nine are you working 10? Are you continuing to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, self-centeredness, fear? And when those come up, are you admitting it to someone? And when you're doing other people harm, are you, are you trying to right that harm at once? If you're doing those things, then you get the 10-step promises, which, which are basically sanity, with, when regaining sanity when it comes to alcohol, recoiling from it as you would from a hot flame no longer being vulnerable to the subtle insanity or the mental twist that precedes the first drink. So I'll continue on page 102. Why sit with a long face in places where there is drinking, sighing about the good old days? 
If it is a happy occasion, try to increase the pleasure of those there. If a business occasion, go and attend to your business enthusiastically. If you are with a person who wants to eat in a bar, by all means, go along. Let your friends know they are not to change their habits on your account. At a proper time and place, explain to your, all your friends why alcohol disagrees with you. If you do this thoroughly, people will ask you. few people will ask you to drink. While you were drinking, you were withdrawing from life little by little. Now you are getting back into the social life of this world. Don't start to withdraw again just because your friends drink liquor. Your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others, so never hesitate to go anywhere if you can be helpful. You should not hesitate to visit the most sordid spot on earth on such an errand. Keep on the firing line of life with these motives, and God will keep you unharmed. So this is also interesting, right? Like now it's saying your goal is to be of the max, of maximum helpfulness to others, and faith in God will give you the courage you need to do just that. This is a lot different than saying you need to sort out what's wrong in your life so you can be a better servant of God, which which Bill had said earlier when he was still theorizing. Now we have the practical evidence. We've gone through the actual practical program of action, and things are starting to get more sane. Bill's trying as much as he can to shove God in there somewhere, anywhere, but usually it's as an afterthought. It's either as an unsupported uh, modification of a word like progress or uh, principle with the word spiritual, or it's just an afterthought here saying, yes, this is about altruism, but um, you know, have faith in God because he'll protect you in your altruistic endeavors. Which, whatever, that's fine. It, it ought to be dismissed, and, and it, it's delusional, and, and it's lunacy, but it's not particularly harmful at this point. So I'll continue at the bottom of 102. Many of us keep liquor in our homes. We often need it to carry green recruits through a severe hangover. Some of us still serve it to our friends, provided they are not alcoholic. But some of us think we should not serve liquor to anyone. We never argue this question. We feel that each family in the light of their own circumstances ought to decide for themselves. We are careful never to show intolerance or hatred of drinking as an institution. Experience shows that such an attitude is not helpful to anyone. Every new alcoholic looks for this spirit among us and, it is, and is immensely relieved when he finds we are not witch burners. A spirit of intolerance might repel alcoholics whose lives could have been saved had it not been for such stupidity. We would not even do the cause of temperate drinking any good, for not one drinker in a thousand likes to be told anything about alcohol by one who hates it. Someday we hope that Alcoholics Anonymous will help the public to a better realization of the gravity of the alcoholic problem, but we shall be of little use in our attitude as one of bitterness or hostility. Drinkers will not stand for it. After all, our problems were of our own making. Bottles were only a symptom. Besides, we have stopped fighting anybody or anything, we have to. And that's the end of chapter seven, working with others. Now, looking ahead to the rest of the chapters of the first 164 pages, to be honest, I got to say, we've gotten through step 12 and the rest of this stuff is not really necessary for us to go through. A lot of them have like very little God content and the God content there is can be cut through in the, using the various means we've already developed through thus far. And we're through the steps. We're through the practical program of action. We're through step 12 now that we've finished working with others. So I'm of a mind to suspend the podcast at this point, to, to finish it, to end it. Um, to end it on page 103 with the end of chapter 7, working with others. And to leave chapter 8 to wives, chapter 9 to employers, 
I'm sorry, chapter 9, the family afterwards, chapter 10, to employers, and chapter 11, a vision for you, to just leave those. And if people want to read them, uh, they can. A vision for you is kind of interesting historically. There's some more history, AA history in it. Uh, It's more just of a summary. And... uh, I, uh, but but that's really my uh, position at this point. I mean, I think we've really seen what needs to be done, and if there there's any feedback people want to share, any ideas, any questions, uh, you know, please uh, feel free to reach out to me. My email is jkjk984 at protonmail.com. And you can always rate, review, and subscribe, of course, here uh, on whatever podcast uh, platform you're you're listening to this on. But I just want to thank you all for going through, you know, what I guess I've come to learn in through this experience is really the basic text. Is not the first 164, but the first 103 pages of the book, including the prefatory materials and appendix two. And uh, it's been really useful for me. I, I hope it's been helpful to some of you out there listening. And, uh, you know, recommend it to a friend if there's something you like about it or, or if you like the process of going through the book with an atheist. And, uh, yeah, I will uh, just... Uh, quote a page 164 though that uh, you know maybe we maybe some of us will surely meet on as we trudge the road of happy destiny so until then uh, thanks a lot and take care